everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I am your host, Michael Bradley, and this is episode 16 for the show. This time out, we are going to be staying in the newspapers as we look at the fourth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. As well, later in the episode, I'll be concluding my two-part spotlight on Superman's co-creator, artist Joe Schuster. I'm actually recording this just a few days after the last episode you heard. As a result, there's no emails or anything to go through, so we're going to just jump right into things in just a minute. Before I do that, though, I wanted to bring to your attention a number of recent episodes of Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast. And I really should have done this last episode, but it slipped my mind until after I'd recorded the episode and had almost finished editing it. So, But anyway... Billy attended Megacon in Orlando, Florida at the end of March, and he did nine episodes of coverage from the con, as well as a preview episode before he went. His coverage included posting complete audio of several panels and summaries of even more, as well as interviews that Billy did with creators, plus some of his overall thoughts on the show. Living where I do, I don't make it to many comic conventions, uh, let alone big ones like Megacon. I think the closest one to me is C2E2 in Chicago, and that's a good five-hour drive away. So I really appreciate Billy doing such extensive coverage of Megacon, and I really like that he was able to post audio from the panels. The Art of Writing for Comics panel, as well as the Many Faces of Mark Wade and Spotlight, or excuse me, Spotlight on George Perez panels were all really enjoyable for me to hear. News sites all across the internet do coverage from the cons, but hearing the actual audio from the panels is so much better than just reading the news wrap-ups, which really only pull out the newsworthy bits, and a lot of times they'll miss the more interesting personal anecdotes. I really encourage you to head over and check out the episodes Billy did on Megacon. You can find these and all episodes of Billy's show at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. Billy's been doing his show since January 2008 and is closing in on 200 episodes now. Uh, he puts together a great show covering a wide variety of topics. Recently, he started a major focus on Superman's Silver Age stories, but past episodes have focused on various creators, stories, or eras of Superman's history. I will put a link to Billy's Megacon posts in the show notes for this episode at greatcrypton.com. But again, the URL for Billy's, Billy's show is supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. It's also on iTunes and the Superman Podcast Network if that's easier. But head over there to Billy's site and give his show a listen and tell him that the Thrilling Adventures of Superman sent you. If you like hearing creators talk about their careers and craft, I think you'll enjoy his Megacon episodes. Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman Podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, 
I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Like I said, this episode we are covering the fourth storyline from the dailies. It was written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster and likely Paul Cassidy as well, and its title is Jewel Smugglers. The story ran from March 20th, 1939 to April 1st, 1939. That puts it starting just shy of two weeks after the likely release of Action Comics number 11, which we looked at in episode 14, and ending just a couple days before the likely release of Action Comics number 12, which we'll be looking at next episode. So, readers at the time got a complete Superman story in the papers in between the comic book issues, which is kind of cool. It is strips 55 through 66, so it's only 12 strips long. That's shorter than the last two stories, but the same length as the first story we looked at, uh, the one that was set almost entirely on Krypton. Our story begins with a copy boy telling Clark Kent that the still nameless editor is waiting to see him. Cut to the editor's office, where Lois Lane is fuming at the editor after getting placed back as writer of the Lovelorn column. Lois is irate, saying that it's not fair, but the editor says that he's sorry and that it's a safer position for her anyway. When Clark arrives, the editor tells him that he did such a good job on covering the comeback of Larry Trent, see last episode for that story, that he's getting a promotion. Clark replies, gee, that's swell. Swell? Yeah. You know, Clark, um, there are very few people left in the world who feel comfortable saying that word. What word? Swell. Really? Oh, so it's kind of natural. And with some short words for Clark, Lois storms out of the office in a huff. Shortly, back out in the newsroom, Lois is ranting to a couple of random co-workers that Clark deliberately stole her job from her. And it's nice to see that the Lois of the Newspaper Daily continuity is as reasonable and level-headed as her comic book counterpart. So, when Clark comes out, he apologizes to Lois for her demotion. He's very polite and says, you know, I'm sorry, nothing I could do, yada yada yada. But Lois just coldly blows him off, saying that she's not happy about it either. And then Clark... (laughs) Poor Clark. For some reason, he feels that this might be the perfect time to ask Lois out on another date. So he says, Let me take you out someplace tonight. I'm very expert at consoling people. Which, 
tossing aside that that might be one of the worst pickup lines ever, it seems pretty obvious that when a woman is annoyed that you stole her job, whether she's justified or not, it's probably not the best time to ask her out on a date. And this is one of the things that really sort of annoys me about this era of Superman. Clark is often written as adult when it comes to trying to get a date with Lois. And yeah, a lot of it owes to his disguise as a, you know, a mild-mannered milksop. And I'm fine with that part of it. But the stories give me the impression that Clark really is interested in Lois. Why that is, given her treatment of him as a whole nether can of worms. But Clark, I think, is genuinely interested in Lois. Because if he wasn't, then why bother asking her out for a date at all? He could still keep the disguise of Clark without subjecting her, you know, subjecting himself over and over to this humiliation that Lois puts him through. So, here we have Clark interested in Lois and asking her out at the worst possible time, ruining any chance, small as it might have been to begin with, that he had. It just doesn't make any sense, and it makes Clark look like he actually is a fool rather than just pretending to be one. Anyway, Clark asks her out, and Lois coldly shuts him down, saying she's not interested. As Clark sulks off, a co-worker scolds Lois for treating him so poorly, but Lois continues to emasculate Clark by saying that, she, that the less she sees of him, the better. Sometime later, a visibly upset woman shows up at the star, asking to see the Lovelorn editor. After the receptionist shows her into Lois's swank new office, and it's a bit odd that She'd get her own office after being demoted, but Lois asks the woman what her problem is and says that she'll be glad to give any advice if she can. The woman says that her husband, Lou Frawley, has started hanging out with a shady bunch of characters at a place called Joe's Joint, apparently one of the more seedier establishments in town. He's rarely at home, he's become physically abusive, and has possibly also joined a smuggling ring. If it seems like more of a job for the police than a sob sister column, you'd be right. But of course, Lois doesn't give a flip about this poor woman getting abused by her jerk husband and tells her just to wait a few days and maybe she'll have some advice to help her out to get her husband back. And under her breath, of course, she's only thinking what a great story it would make. So great, in fact, that she it might just help her win her job back. <sighs> Back in the newsroom, Clark ruminates on how Lois so bluntly shot him down earlier. Suddenly, Lois appears, is very flirtatious, and, much to Clark's delight, says that she's had a change of heart and would love to go on a date with him. So, later that night, Lois and Clark are in a cab, and Lois tells the cabbie to head to Joe's joint. Clark is hesitant to go to such a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but Lois just calls him a sissy and drags him inside anyway. And as an aside, Clark's dialogue here actually adds a bit of support to a theory that I talked about back in episode 14 when I wondered if Siegel didn't originally possibly intend for Superman to be based out of Cleveland because Clark remarks that Joe's is located on the waterfront and Cleveland is, of course, located right on Lake Erie. It's not hard evidence by any means and, like I said, it could just be he was working from what he knew but it's just interesting to me how things keep pointing back to Cleveland. So, once inside the club, Lois and Clark take to dancing. Clark again expresses his displeasure at being in such a dangerous place, but Lois replies, quote, Not scared, are you? 
A little slumming will do you good. And at this point, all I can think is, you know, Lois, last time Superman heard of someone slumming, he locked a dozen people in a mine and nearly killed them all. So you better just watch out. Anyway, Lois spots Frawley with a couple of shifty characters at a table near the corner. Determined to get his attention, Lois gives him a not-so-subtle wink, apparently unbeknownst to Clark, even though he's staring right at her when she does it. Lou spots the advance and decides to cut the poor gal a break and cut in. Clark protests the interruption, but Lou, in a scene kind of similar to the one with Butch Mason in Action Comics number 1, is having none of it and just gives Clark a shove to the face for his trouble and then begins dancing with Lois. While Lou and Lois dance and trade flirty remarks, Clark, keeping with his mild-mannered shtick, just fumes in the corner. And this is a good example of where Siegel's portrayal of Clark's timidity makes sense. But asking Lois out at the worst possible time imaginable, when he really is interested in her, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But anyway, as Lois and Lou dance, Lois uh, slips a piece of paper out of Lou's pocket, Later, she excuses herself to the ladies' room and checks out the paper to find that it reads, Jewel shipment coming in this evening. Signed, Barney. Yeah. Convenient, eh? Convenient that Lou's thugs write him notes. Convenient that Lou keeps the notes in his pocket. Convenient that Lois was able to grab it without Lou noticing. So, when Lou gets back to the table with his thugs, they tell him that they saw Lois swipe the note from his pocket and decide to go take care of her. You know, again, take care of her. Meanwhile, and it's weird because this part really jumps back and forth quite a bit. But anyway, meanwhile, Lois throws a classic Lois tantrum and storms out of the joint, telling Clark that she's not going to stick around with a guy who lets her be insulted. It's a bit odd because I'm not sure how she was insulted. I mean, Lou wanting to dance with her, is that insulting? or? But... She does her epic storm out, and Clark follows her. And as they get outside, they're held up by Lou's thugs and forced into a waiting boat. As the boat departs the dock, Lou grabs Lois by the hair, demanding to know who she is. Lois cries out in pain, and Clark tells Lou to let her go. Lou replies with a fist to Clark's jaw, knocking him out of the boat and into the water. Lois begs for the men to go back and get him, saying that he'll drown, but Lou replies with a cold, Who cares? And the boat floats on. As the boat leaves, Clark pops his head above water and decides it's time for Superman to lend a hand and teach the thugs a lesson. So, diving back underwater, Clark begins to swim, beating the boat to the wharf. He then climbs out of the water, discards Clark Kent's clothes, revealing the costumed form of Superman, and hides in the shadows to await the boat's arrival. When Lou and the thugs arrive at the wharf, they drag Lois into a nearby shack, unaware that Superman is looming nearby. Once inside the shack, Lou threatens Lois, thinking she's with the police. Lois pleads with him, saying that she's not a detective, she's just a reporter after a hot scoop. With that, Lois decides to give her the story, and, as villains are wont to do, starts monologuing about his evil plans to smuggle jewels in from Europe for people who don't want to pay customs. Lois then asks what I'm sure we're all thinking, why exactly Lou would tell her all this. And one of his thugs pulls out a gun and says, because you'll never live to print it. 
Suddenly, a deafening crash, and through the wall busts Superman. Superman's been busting through a lot of walls in a newspaper strip. Have you noticed that? Anyway, he warns Lou not to shoot, but Lou pulls the trigger, leaving Lois in a rather precarious situation. But, faster than the eye can blink, Superman dashes forward, putting himself between Lois and certain death, and letting the bullet bounce off his invulnerable chest. With Lois saved, Superman sets his sights on taking care of Lou and the thugs. Picking them up, he tosses them into the boat, then lifts the boat overhead and leaps back over the water into town, leaving the thugs outside the local police station. Lois tells Superman that, with the jewels as evidence, she'll press charges against the men, but she asks Superman not to leave until then. But Superman stoically tells her he can't remain and leaves. Later, back at the Daily Star, Lois barges into the editor's office with her big story about the smugglers. But the editor cuts her off, showing her the front page headline, Smugglers Apprehended, Giant Ring Uncovered, by Clark Kent. Lois turns around and is stunned to see Clark standing behind her. Clark explains that even though he had never swam before, he was able to reach dry land and phone in the story which just leaves Lois slack-jawed in surprise. The end. Despite the abrupt and kind of sitcomish ending, this wasn't a bad story, but definitely not up to the bar set by the first three stories from the newspaper dailies. Uh, but still, it was good, except for the ridiculously convenient part of Lois finding a note in Lou's pocket that just happened to outline his plans. It's a pretty straightforward story. I've got no complaints about that, Unlike the comics where they're stuck with a strict 13-page feature, the newspaper serial allows Siegel, or any writer for that matter, to use as much or as little space as needed to tell a story. You know, they can tell the bigger epic stories or the smaller 12-strip stories. Given that we're used to the slightly longer stories in the comics, a shorter one like this might feel kind of like filler. But I don't mind the shorter ones from time to time, especially if they're ones like this that really don't need expanded on. This is actually one of the shortest stories from the dailies. Like I said, it was only 12 strips, like the first storyline we covered. Those two, along with one more that was published in 1941, are the only 12-strip stories. So from here on out, we'll have longer ones. In fact, there's one coming up fairly soon that's a whopping 96 strips long. To put that in comparison with the comics... It seems like a good estimate for translating how long a newspaper story would be if it was published in the comics is to divide the strip count by two, which means that the 96 strip story would be 48 pages in the comics. So for this era, that's a pretty epic length uh, story. This is the most that we've seen Lois in the newspaper strip so far, and it's the first time we've seen any interaction at all between her and Clark. She had a good-sized role in the second storyline, but she and Clark didn't interact there. And it's been a while since we've had a, a good Lois off her rocker story in either media. Uh, God, I guess it's been all the way back in episode 9, so it was really good to get Lois back in the stories again. Speaking of Lois, this is the most brutal that we've seen Lois treated physically in the story so far. I mean, when Lou forces her into the boat... He grabs a fistful of her hair and just gives it a yank. Even the expression on her face looks painful. We've seen guys getting punched or thrown around or stabbed. And then there's how the villains have treated people. 
<laughs> but violence or getting physical against the female characters isn't something that we've really that's really been any of, in any of Siegel's stories so far. And I'm curious how much violence against Lois or other female characters we'll see over the next year or so before Superman starts lightening up. And on the subject of violence against women, I'm annoyed by the fact that it's brought up at the beginning of the story that Lou Frawley is abusing his wife and then it's just blown off like nothing. Here, I'm, I'm going to read I'm going to read the dialogue if I can find it in the, the book here. As I stalling for time, stalling for time. Okay, here's here's the uh, Here's the exact quote from the strip. We got along fine till he took to hanging out with a bun- with a tough bunch at Joe's joint. Now he rarely comes home. When he does, he beats me. This is a photo of him. And worse, I think he's joined a gang of smugglers. And I would think that, as a woman, the fact that this woman is being abused would have triggered some sort of compassion in Lois. But it doesn't. Instead, she just goes right to the suspected jewel smuggling, ignoring the abuse. After her visit with Lois, we don't even see the wife at all in the rest of the story. The poor woman isn't even named. And Frawley's abuse of her is never brought up again. Violence against women is a subject that I take very seriously. I don't mind seeing it incorporated into fiction, but I expect it to be handled properly. I don't like it being used for quote-unquote comedic effect. I don't like it, you know, I don't like seeing it being used flippantly just to draw heat against a villain or the bad guy du jour and then never followed up on. It really bothers me that it's just thrown in here so offhandedly in order to paint Lou as, ooh, the big bad evil villain. Yeah, let's just use that to draw heat and have Superman bust someone for smuggling jewelry to avoid paying a few tariffs. In the very first story, the very first Superman story ever, we see Superman doling out his own brand of justice to a man abusing his wife. And yeah, I know Superman didn't know about the abuse here, but Lois did, and her, of all people, should have at least offered an, are you okay, maybe you should seek shelter, don't go home to him. But no, she just sends the woman home and says, I'll get back to you in a few days. But who did or didn't know isn't the point. This is Superman, for crying out loud. Social crusader, champion of the helpless and oppressed, devoted to helping those in need. It's the perfect story in which to have Superman intervene. And yet, here, nothing. And I'm hesitant to use the word hate, but yeah, I hate it. Millions of women are abused every year. Most of these cases are never even reported. And it is a topic that should never be used without treating it as the grave subject matter that it is. So, that's my soapbox for this episode. Uh, The art in this issue isn't as strong as the first three. It feels a little off-model from what we've seen. I wondered if there might be another person inking here, uh, but online sources say that Paul Cassidy did ink it. So maybe it was just a rush job or something. I'm, I'm not real sure. It's not terrible, but there are some panels where Lois just looks a little wonky. And Superman does as well, especially in the panel where he deflects the bullet. Overall, the lines just they just don't seem as solid as in previous strips. There is a nice detail early in the story. Uh, when, we see, when we first see Clark, he's seated at his desk wearing a fedora that's kind of tipped back on his head a little bit. 
and he's just sporting a vest and a shirt with the sleeves rolled up. The next panel, when he's entering into the editor's office, he has taken off his hat and he's put his suit jacket back on. So that's a nice little detail with Clark, you know, making himself look a bit more professional before going to see the boss. So overall, this story has got its moments, but it's definitely the weakest of the newspaper runs so far. But still, it's not the worst. Uh, it's not the worst story we've looked at by any means. This story has been reprinted in the first dailies volume from Kitchen Sink, and like the others, is available online at DCComics.com. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes, as always. It was also colored and reprinted in Superman number three, which had a winter 1940 cover date. And that colorized version was reprinted in Superman Archives Volume One and Superman Volume Superman Chronicles Volume Two. So once again, lots of places to find the story if you're interested in reading it firsthand. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in, and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why, no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited, too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? Men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories.
you happen to miss the first part of the spotlight on Joe Schuster, please go back and listen to the last episode, episode number 15. In that portion, I covered the beginning of Schuster's life, his earliest comic book work and collaborations with good friend Jerry Siegel, as well as the creation and sale of Superman. When I left off, Schuster and Siegel's Superman strip, after languishing in a slush pile for years, had finally leapt into printed form with the first issue of Action Comics. The Superman strip was an immediate success with readers, selling out issue after issue. The strip was such a blockbuster that by the beginning of 1939, the character was not only appearing in Action Comics, but his own daily newspaper strip as well. By the end of that year, he had his very own title in a Sunday Color newspaper strip, with a radio serial following in 1940 and a series of animated theatrical shorts beginning in 1941. Between the comics and the newspaper strip, the increased workload actually had an unusual effect of making Schuster somewhat more efficient in his art. Schuster said in a late 1980s interview that while he normally drew and wrote left-handed, he developed the ability to letter with both hands. He recalled that when he got tired, he would simply switch and letter with the other hand. Unfortunately, the workload still proved too much for Schuster to handle alone. He and Siegel were working on five other strips at the time of Superman's debut. With Schuster's deteriorating eyesight making things even more difficult, Schuster began hiring other artists to ghost artwork on the strips, eventually employing an entire shop of artists. Over the next decade, the shop would include artists such as Paul Cassidy, Paul Loretta, Dennis Neville, Wayne Boring, John Sakella, Hi Mankin, Ed DeBrotka, and more. By the end of 1939, Schuster had handed off art duties on all his other collaborations with Siegel in order to focus all his efforts on Superman. Even though the artists of the Schuster shop were allowed more stylistic freedom than other art shops of the day, the artists still worked directly under the supervision of Schuster. Gradually, more and more responsibility was handed off to Boring, Sakella, and the others. But Schuster still provided layouts for the most important stories as well as retaining the duty of inking all heads on Superman and likely Lois Lane as well until the end of his tenure at DC in the mid to late 1940s. While Siegel would join the Army in 1943 to fight during World War II, Schuster did not enlist. His eyesight left him classified as Class 4F, not acceptable for military service. It was around this time that many artists in the Schuster shop moved to New York City and began working directly for National, still doing art duties on the Superman strip. When Siegel returned from his military service in 1946, he and Schuster had hoped to reestablish their shop in Cleveland and return to business as usual. However, according to Siegel, they encountered great resistance from DC in trying to do so. As well, they discovered that DC had published Superboy, a strip created and previously submitted to DC without their knowledge or payment in 1945. Upset by both of these things, as well as what they perceived to be poor treatment and unfair compensation from D.C. over the previous decade, Schuster and Siegel took the company to court. Represented by attorney Albert Zugsmith, Schuster and Siegel hoped to get what was owed to them from Superboy and also regain the ownership of Superman. The lawsuit ended with the judge ruling in Schuster and Siegel's favor concerning Superboy. However, it didn't give them the one thing they wanted most, the rights to Superman. Because of this, Schuster and Siegel appealed the decision and ultimately settled out of court for nearly $100,000 each. While it was somewhat of a minor victory, part of the settlement required them each to sign a quit claim, abandoning any claims to Superboy or Superman, 
even though the court said they had no rights to the latter to begin with. But even worse, as a result of the lawsuit, DC fired both Schuster and Siegel from all work with the company, and both of their names were removed from the Superman strip. Ostracized from DC, Schuster and Siegel rejoined their former editor, Vin Sullivan, at his new publishing company, Magazine Enterprises. There, the two collaborated once more to produce a new strip, Funny Man, a comical crime fighter. While the strip would be the focus of a comic book lasting six issues in a short-lived newspaper strip in 1948, Lightning fell far short of striking twice, and Funny Man was deemed a failure. The years following Funny Man's demise were a dark time for Schuster, and he largely faded out of sight for the next two decades. The sources of information on his life and career through these years are mainly based in rumor, hearsay, and anecdotes spread throughout the industry. For a few years in the early 50s, it seems Schuster may have done some art in low-rent adult publications from Charlton, Martin Goodman, and other publishers. Starting in 1953, he did some illustrations for a sleazy underground publication called Knights of Horror, which featured lurid S&M and other erotic torture material. Schuster never admitted to the work, and most was not signed due to not only its nature, but more to the fact that the material was illegal at the time. In 1954 and 1955, Siegel is credited with a handful of covers and interior pencils for Charlton's various crime, horror, and suspense comics. But following that, it seems Schuster never worked in the comics industry again. In 1966, Schuster and Siegel sued DC concerning the copyright renewal rights to Superman. Under then-existing copyright law, creators were entitled to claim renewal rights 28 years after the property's creation and the pair felt the out-of-court settlement signed in the late 40s did not preempt these rights. The courts decreed this was not the case, however, and ruled against them in 1968, though Schuster and Siegel would continue to appeal this decision over the next seven years. This dark period in Schuster's life wasn't without a few bright moments, however. Even though they were no longer credited with the creation of Superman and comic book stories featuring the character, the comics industry as a whole began honoring Schuster and Siegel's part in the creation of the industry. In 1971, they were honored as the first inductees into the Academy of Comic Book Arts Hall of Fame. And four years later, they were each given the Inkpot Award at the 1975 San Diego Comic-Con. Around this time, Schuster and Siegel stopped the appeals of the 1968 court decision concerning the renewal rights to Superman. Siegel would later say they refrained from taking the case to the Supreme Court because those in charge of DC at the time had implied that there may be some compensation or recognition for them should they stop their legal action. As it had been many years and there were different people running the company, Schuster and Siegel took a chance, hoping the new faces would also mean a new direction. Despite dropping litigation, by the end of 1975, DC had made no moves toward giving further compensation to either creator. With Schuster at near blindness, both he and Siegel in failing health, and reports of the money being spent on the upcoming Superman movie, Siegel issued a press release on behalf of himself and Schuster with a scathing rebuke of DC and Warner Brothers, blasting the companies and detailing what they had seen as unfair treatment throughout the years. Eventually, as word of the story spread, comic book legends Jerry Robinson and Neil Adams got wind of the situation and led a huge campaign to bring attention to Schuster and Siegel's plight. With press releases, media attention, television appearances, and more behind them, more and more voices joined the push, and soon the cause had also gained the support of the Academy of Comic Book Arts, the National Cartoonist Society, the Magazine Guild, and comic creators from throughout the industry, 
Finally, in December 1975, D.C. relented and reached a settlement with Schuster and Siegel. They agreed to provide both men with an annual stipend and lifetime health benefits. As well, they agreed that from then on, creator credit to both Schuster and Siegel was to be restored on comics, television shows, movies, and any other stories featuring Superman. While Schuster again largely faded from the spotlight after this, he no doubt had at least some manner of satisfaction at finally, after three decades, being recognized once more as co-creator of Superman. Schuster received more awards and honors in the years following his death in 1992, including induction into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 1992 and the Jack Kirby Hall of Fame in 1993. In 2005, Schuster was posthumously honored in his original hometown of Toronto when a street on the city's west side was renamed Joe Schuster Way in recognition of his role in Superman's creation. He was also among the first class of inductees into the Canadian Comic Book Creator Hall of Fame, and, with permission of the Schuster Estate, the Canadian Comic Book Creator Awards Association established the Joe Schuster Awards, which annually recognized the work of Canadian comic book creators, publishers, and retailers. Joe Schuster died of heart failure on July 30, 1992, in California. Though he remained a bachelor his entire life and had no children to carry on his memory, it is sure he will be remembered by the comics industry and the legions of fans of the legendary character he helped bring to life. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage, I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. 
Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from, from Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. you enjoyed the spotlight on Joe Schuster as well as the spotlight on Jerry Siegel from episodes 10 and 12. Much has been written about both men over the last 70 plus years, but it really can't be overstated how important they are, not just to Superman, but to the entire comic book industry. There's something writer Roger Stern was quoted as saying in an issue of Wizard some years ago that's always stuck with me. He said, Despite all the raw deals Siegel and Schuster may have gotten over the years, there's no way they could ever really be adequately paid for what they did. That amount of money doesn't exist in the world. They gave us Superman. They gave us a legend. And I think that about sums it up. So, with that, I want to thank you once more for joining me this episode. Next time out, we'll be back to the comics for Action Comics number 12, where Superman declares war on reckless driving. (laughs) In the meantime, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. If you've got Uh, constructive feedback or questions or comments or if you just want to drop a line to say hi feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com I also invite you to stop by the website which is www.greatcrypton.com where you can find show notes for this and previous episodes as well as other Superman and comic related postings from time to time at the site you'll also find a link to the show's Facebook page Like the show on Facebook, and you can send feedback that way or get notes when I post new episodes or have other, you know, show-related news. Plus, from time to time, I post some other fun things that fans of the Golden Age Superman might enjoy. So, head on over to Facebook and friend the show. If you'd like to subscribe to the show directly, there is the RSS feed. That's linked at the site. And, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, if you subscribe that way, please make sure you're using the new feed that's currently linked at the site. The old feed wasn't picking up all the posts from the site, so if you haven't switched out to the new feed, be sure to head on over to greatcrypton.com and get the new link. The show is also on iTunes, and that link is at the site as well. If you subscribe via iTunes, I invite you to leave an iTunes review because it helps people find the show and know that it's worth giving a listen to. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And that serves as a second home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts. And finally, I invite you to check out my other show, which I co-host with my friend Michael Kaiser, Legends of the Batman, where each episode we take a month of Batman material, starting with his first appearance in 1939, and explore through the history of the Dark Knight. And the site for that is batmanlegends.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster and his copyright DC Comics. 
Thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, everyone. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye! Okay, how about this? Um, we'll stay late. We'll get dinner. I'll help with Superman, and you and Clark can work on the blackout together. Is that all right with you, Clark? Sure. Well.